0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Welcome uh, to the show today. This is Carol Bossert. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, museums and their ability to affect uh, social change. Uh, we talk a lot about that on the show Um uh, It is, as as, uh, my listeners know, a very near and dear topic to me. I think that even when we're not uh, specifically having a guest who's focused on that topic, it really is a theme that runs throughout all of our shows. Museums uh, and other cultural institutions are realizing that, particularly in uh, the times we live in, that uh, museums have a significant role to play in both the national and international dialogue uh, of uh, civic and social issues and so today I have a great guest uh, who really is not only talking about museums and social change but his entire career has been devoted uh, to uh, making real change and using his uh, expertise and the collections and the museums uh, that he's been working for to make a uh, a real difference in communities and so I want to welcome today Peter Armstrong who is currently the senior director of museum operations and education at the Jamestown Yorktown foundation. And, uh, I'm going to let him share the rest of his career experience in his own words as, uh, as I often do, but I will say that, uh, Peter has had a long uh, and illustrious and fabulous career, both here in the United States and in the UK. And so, uh, I know he's going to provide a great deal of insight for us today. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, Peter, as I, as I said, I, I think it's very important for you to share in your words your career path. And I know listeners are always so very interested in uh, hearing those key experiences that have shaped uh, your thinking, and particularly about your thinking and the role of museums in social change.
2: Well, my career path is a bit of a strange one, to be honest. It's not necessarily the career path you'd imagine for somebody working in museums, which is probably why I kind of think of them in a little bit different way than to perhaps a, a normal uh, museum professional. So I, my background really is in drama. So I was a theatre student. I did a degree in drama, and then I left uh working in drama to try and make a living in the theatre. Like many people in the theatre, I decided that there's no way I could make a living. So I then moved into uh, working in museums and in other visitor attractions and even in things like car factories uh, to show that really what I do is tell stories, turn the public about uh, things that they would see. So when I worked in the car factory, for instance, uh, a Nissan, which is a Japanese car factory in the UK, everybody was really interested in that time to understand how the robots made the cars. So we used to have about 80,000 visitors, very much like a museum to go inside the uh, car factory and see what was going on. So telling stories there. Then I moved on to working in aquariums and visitor attractions. And again, telling people about the the objects that they were looking at or the animals that they were looking at. And then eventually I moved into working in a museum. And I was lucky enough to work in a museum called the Galleries of Justice, which was a museum based in Nottingham in England. And that museum specialized in, it was a, a large court, an old Victorian court. So it had a very fantastic building that people would wander around, but we did a lot of work with young offenders, young children that had started to offend uh, and were ending up going to court and eventually potentially going to jail. So we did quite a lot of work with them using the building, so we'd have mock trials And we'd look at issues, moral issues, you know, is it ever right to steal? Uh, What are the consequences of that? We'd bring in people from other uh, prisons that would sit with the children and talk to them. We'd discuss uh, issues about uh, home lives, etc., within the context of what was a very safe environment. And then I moved from there to the Royal Armouries, which is a British National Museum of Arms and Armour. So most people would imagine it's things like Henry VIII's uh, armors and the armors from uh, the medieval period, but it also has weaponry right up to modern day. And of course, that, that opened a huge number of issues about, uh, about violence and about uh, weapons and, and uh, knife crimes and so on and so on. So all the way through, although my career has been about telling stories and telling uh, objects and how those stories are told, often that means that you're talking about some quite difficult and complex issues.
1: Yes, Uh, and I want to get uh, further, uh, later into the program, I I want to give you the opportunity to talk specifically about how you used uh, the armory collection uh, to... uh, Use it as a platform to talk about important social justice issues, which, of course, are of violence, something that is is uh, certainly particularly relevant uh, today in uh, in this country, with some some recent uh, horrific experiences that that uh, are occurring across the nation. But first, I'd like to ask you. I mean, I, I understand you said that that you may not have had a traditional uh, path into to museums, and I I think that's another trend, uh, perhaps. Perhaps it's it's uh, the guests I pick, uh, in more innovative thinkers, or perhaps people who haven't uh, uh, come from a traditional path. But you know, in honesty, I don't know. Uh, of anyone who really enters museums in a very very traditional path, but you certainly have had uh, you know a, a breadth of experience, but have have been working in the field for a while, and I'm I'm wondering if you have some perspective on uh, how you would characterize the sort of the shift in thinking about museums as, and I'm paraphrasing Stephen Wiles' uh, uh, quote about museums, but as as museums as places. Uh, about things to uh, a transition to think about museums as a place uh, for people?
2: Yes, I think that my, my thinking on this is that, uh, well, the, first of all, the transition is slow because anything I think uh, that has large institutions that, like museums are, there'll always be a slow transition. And often you can fall into the trap by trying to change things tomorrow which is very difficult for people to do. So there's a kind of, you have to understand there's going to be a, a, a slow transition as museums move from, from one kind of animal into, a, into another animal. But museums have always been seen. The word museum is kind of associated with dusty and stuffy and quiet. And, you know, that's one of the the, the struggles that I think we have uh, is to to get the public to understand that the museums are not like that anymore. Uh, But obviously, even some of the buildings, if you look at some of the buildings that were built, particularly in America, when museums were being built in new cities, you'll see uh, buildings that were built very much like uh, Greek temples, of uh, temples of worship, and you go up lots of stairs, and you go through large columns, and there's a large room, and in the room there's these kind of unique things lit, and you read the labels, and then you uh, worship at these particular objects, and then you move on. And that was kind of how museums have been perceived for a long time, and we've got a lot of work to try and move people away from that perception. And then kind of as museums have progressed, they've become... Uh, we sometimes fall in the trap, I think, of creating museums, and, and his, the quote that you paraphrased which says, places for people, I think I'd rather say there are places about people, because the for people, sometimes museums fall in a trap by saying, and you'll know this when you go to any big city, if you want to go to a great restaurant, go to the one in museums. If you want to go to a large space that you can sit in a, in, a, in a lovely environment and quietly chat, you can go to a museum. So the museums become places where people meet, and I think the, the owner, the, the, the the, the run, people that run these museums have to consider that's all well and good but also we need those people to know not just meet in the, in the great reception see a wonderful piece of sculpture eat in a fantastic restaurant and leave we need them to engage with the objects and the stories in that museum as well so there's a whole uh, lot of work that's got to be done to also persuade visitors just to pass that threshold uh, from the, from the kind of fantastic lobby area into the heart of the museum itself so I think Making stories about people because people love hearing about other people is, is the way to do that. To understand those objects, although uh, they are fast, could be fascinating objects in their own right, are really just telling us a story about the people who made them, the people who used them, the people who may have cleaned them, and even the people who put them in that museum. Uh, museums have got fascinating stories about the individuals and why those objects have been selected. You know, why do we predict that particular gun or why do we predict that particular pot who put it in there? How much did it cost to buy it? How did they get it there? How was it found? All those kind of fascinating stories attached to it, even to the museum, as well as the object itself. So for me, I would say that the, the museums are shifting not just as places of things and places for people, but places about people, the stories of those people.
1: That's a very, uh, very good way of expressing it, and I am just very struck by your observation that as mu- museums, particularly in large cities, large to medium cities, have uh, tried to take on their role as a part of the civic society, as you say, as as a place to congregate or as a place to, you know, eat great food and be with friends, that those amenities sometimes overshadow or create barriers, as you say, yeah. to people to even coming in and and taking part in the other aspects of the museum. Sometimes, I've not really thought about it before, but of course, in the name of access we put the museum restaurant someplace where you don't have to you know, go past the yeah. the gated area, which is good for access, but then does sort of mean that people can come and go and maybe never see some of the other aspects of the museum. I, that's I never yep. really quite thought about that before. It's going to give me a new new way to to uh, to engage. Yeah. I think. So I think we also
2: forget we also forget that the kind of restaurant is part of the museum. So it's not a museum with a fantastic restaurant. It's actually a, it's a whole. So I know the American Indian Museum in, in Washington does a fantastic job in making sure the menu fits with the, with the, the subject, the matter. Uh, so, you know, you can buy food that was, that was available and, and made in various parts of America connected to American Indians. But, but some restaurants kind of say, let me just give you a great view of the city when we could really be talking about the museum and what the museum is trying to say within the menu, within the objects that might be in within the museum and within the restaurant and, and really just kind of make it part of the whole rather than stand alone
1: that's a that is a, a very good point peter thank you for bringing that up i'm wondering if you know talking about barriers uh... and i'm wondering if you would uh... because you have been involved in uh... taking museums and and moving them into uh... places to talk about uh, social issues but of course i'm sure you talk with all of your other colleagues and you see other museums what How would you characterize those barriers uh, for some museums to think about addressing contemporary social issues?
2: Well, it's a really it's a tricky question because, and it's a very good question because the social issues are something that museums may not want to address at all then maybe, you know, their visitation numbers are good and everything's going along very well. Why would they want to address these, these social issues and why would they want to get involved? And often they play a bit lip service to it. So you'll have a museum that will say, well, we deal with social issues because we have an, a community officer in our education department. Uh, And I would say to them that if you were building an exhibition about, say, the Smithsonian was doing an exhibition about flight and how it started, you wouldn't do that exhibition purely with your experts on flight. You would also have somebody involved who may be from your shop about what you might sell in the flight. You'd have somebody certainly for marketing about how they're going to sell the exhibition. You'd probably have somebody in there for maintenance so you can ensure that it – so you'd have a whole holistic – group of people looking at the issue of that exhibition. So I would say it's the same thing with social issues. It's not just the responsibility of the education department to look at the social issues, it's responsibility of the whole museum. And that means it's also the responsibility of the directors of the museum and the board of trustees or the board of directors that oversees that. And that's when it becomes difficult, because it's a whole new area that those individuals may never have been involved in. So it takes a lot of kind of a, it takes a lot of nurturing for them to understand what it means, but B, you have to show the, uh, the, 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 what, the relevance of it and also the, uh, how, how that will help the museum in the future, what the gains will be by getting involved in those things, because any museum is, is looking for a few things like more visitation, more involvement, etc., uh, and you have to show how getting involved in these social issues will do that, uh, rather than just become another two or three members of staff and a burden on the, on the budget. So there's a difficult uh, uh, work to be done, but it has to be right across the museum It can't just be we're doing some great stuff in our education department
1: that too is uh, a a very important uh, a statement and i and it is uh i think a an issue that we still haven't quite overcome is that uh one, I think showing the value of the education department, uh, not only to do what they do, but to be leaders, perhaps, in yes. this nurturing that you're talking yeah. about.
2: Yes, yeah. Yeah, often when you're sitting in a, in a group with uh, – and I will say it's very different. I would just make parallels between America and the U.K. So in the U.K., it is very unusual to be sitting there in an exhibition uh, co- uh, environment, developing an exhibition or developing a new gallery and having the education really embedded within what you're doing. You have to really drag it together to get that. America is actually a little bit more uh, uh, open in, in, in listening to other, uh, uh, d- other departments and how they can play a part with it, particularly in education. And I know what the mission of the James Town Yorktown Foundation, actually our mission statement, is all about how it's about education. It's not a mission statement that talks about objects or stories. It talks about how do we bring in education. So I think in America is kind of a little bit ahead in the U.K. There's a, a minister, an old minister of the what we call the culture, media, and sport, uh, which is the, the department that runs museums in the U.K. And he used to describe the board members of the U.K. museums as, uh, old, as male, pale, and stale used so to say that, that that was one of the problems that most of the board members are either old white men that are running those boards. And consequently, you, you have very difficult to get them to understand there were some real social issues that those museums can change. It's not something I find particularly in America. I find that in the, in the U.S. is much more of an open uh, to, to, to change, really, I think, which is one of the great uh, uh, pleasures of working here.
1: Oh, well, you know, that's a. Uh that's very good to hear. I I think all of us, you know, no matter where we come from, have the uh, <clears throat> sort of fall into the trap that things could be better and therefore things must be bad. And it's always yeah. good to hear, you know, it's really good to hear uh, from someone who is coming with a little fresh perspective that that uh, many times we were doing some uh, really, really good things and uh, I personally am very heartened that we are on a good track when I hear uh, and listen to some of my colleagues who are just emerging and coming into the profession with uh, fresh ideas and are not... What did you say? Old, old, pale and stale. Male, male.
2: get the male bit in. Male, pale and stale. You want to make sure you mention the male bit.
1: Yes. Well, I, I get I get in a lot of trouble if I if I start harping on white men too much, as I I have uh, <clears throat> want to do, and I have been corrected from time to time. So I'll let you stay uh, stay on that that track. And before I get myself in any more trouble, Peter, we're going to go ahead and take our first of two breaks. And when we come back, Peter, I really want to talk to you about some of the specific activities uh, that you have been doing and and why perhaps uh, history museums are uniquely positioned to help people understand social change. Uh, So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Remember, I love hearing from all of my listeners, uh, particularly Really, uh, I appreciate it when you send me uh, advice on. Uh Either guests, uh, many of my guests are uh, are on the show because of personal recommendations from those of you who are listening and also really important topics uh, that we should continue p- to be discussing. So please share uh, those thoughts with me on at carol.bossert at verizon.net or send me a tweet at at right and I'll figure out how to answer that. Uh, so we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712 stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
0: you're tuned into museum life with carol Bossert. to reach our program today please call one 866 472 That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life. And today... I am talking with Peter Armstrong who is the Senior Director of Museum Operations and Education at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation and I know in this segment we will have an opportunity to hear uh, some of the work that Peter is doing uh, in the name of social justice, and uh, particularly we will get to hear some of the exciting things that are that he has been planning for the Jamestown-Yorktown uh, Foundation's uh, reopening of, of that museum, and I will let Peter share some of those specifics with you. I know you will, you as I are interested in that project and can't wait for it to open. But Peter, right before we took break, we were talking about some of the challenges and barriers that museums either put up for themselves or, in fact, are real barriers of concern and fear, uh, perhaps at the board level and the director level. But I'm wondering, because you have worked in a variety of cultural organizations, but particularly museums that we might generally call history museums do you think that that history museums are uniquely positioned to help uh people understand social issues and and uh social change
2: yeah i think we are i think there's a there's a, a, a thing about history museums that you know nothing is new in the world it's all happened before uh and all those issues that we're dealing with today issues that were dealt with uh, that were being dealt with uh In the past. So by looking at some of those past things and some of those lessons, it obviously helps us in the future to deal with it. So history museums in some ways, I wouldn't say unique, but they have a, they have a good, you know, they have a bit of a, uh, a start on the, on the conversation because they can clearly see the parallels with what has happened before. So, you know, we, we had, uh, as you know, in the UK, we have a, we don't allow uh, weapons anymore. We don't have guns anymore in the UK, uh, but that's nothing new that was brought. There was a law that was brought in in the, in the uh, 18th century where guns were banned for a period of time as well. So there's a, there's nothing new in the world, and so history museums are able to kind of use those lessons, talk about those things, and connect them. Because we all know in the museum industry that the buzzword for the museum industry is relevance. So history museums have a lot of uh, ability to be able to, to show that relevance uh, between then and today.
1: Yes, very well yes. said. Um,
2: yeah.
1: So I was... Uh, you know, well, I wanted to say one of the reasons that I uh, found you and wanted to bring you on the show was a chapter that you have written for a book that is soon to be published uh, called Inspiring Action. And uh, you were talking, you were doing a wonderful case study about uh, the project that you did at the Royal Armories, and I'm wondering if you might uh, just perhaps use that as a case study, sort of to take sure. us through sure. that process. Okay.
2: Well, just to give people an understanding of what the Royal Armories is, it's a, it's a national museum in the UK, so it's a very large museum. There's about 12 national museums in the UK. They're all free entry, so it's a large museum like the British Museum or the Science Museum. <laughs> But it specialised in, in, in uh, weapons of and uh, of uh, and the collections from very early ages, right? usually from the the uh, 1066 up to modern day. So, it's a, it's a large museum full of basically things that are either designed to put a hole in you or put a hole in somebody else. So, they're quite a, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a weapon based museum. Quite fascinating in the kind of development of weaponry, but also it has a, a, another message underlying it. So, when we looked at that museum and said to ourselves, what actually is the message we want to tell? We came back with a brand called About Protection maybe it 's about these objects were designed to protect people, protect nations, and we could look at how we could work in society to look at also developing protection for that so originally we looked at uh, we looked at gun crime it wasn 't something we could do with gun crime, but to, uh, to be uh, to be perfectly frank, gun crime in the U.K. is not a huge issue. Uh, we're looking at maybe 170 or so people that are killed by guns in the U.K. So it was not a, a major issue for us to deal with. It was being dealt with very well by, by the police force, etc. So then we had uh, we looked at uh, knife crime. Because in the U.K., that was becoming an up-and-coming uh, a crime. And actually, it's actually building up again in, in, in London. There's a lot of work that's going on in London at the moment for that. And this is one of the... Uh, Phrases that was being dubbed was fear and fashion, which was children would carry a knife because they were fearful that they would be attacked by somebody else, but also it was quite fashionable and cool to have one as well. So we worked with uh, the local community to develop a thing called No to Knives, which was a program where, at its, at its most, uh, most complex, it dealt with young people who had already been convicted of knife crimes, and we brought them into the museum and we worked with them, and we worked with the police, we worked with social workers, and we developed courses that allowed the young people to just address some of the issues that led them to either use knives or carry knives. And uh, it was quite an interesting thing from a museum perspective, because museums are pretty neutral places. So if you get a child who's already rejected going to school, uh, there's no point in taking him into a school classroom and trying to teach him something, because he's already rejected school. Or if you've got somebody who has been arrested a number of times, and you want to take them into a police station and tell them about uh, how their their, their current uh, attitude will lead them to go to jail... That they're very much resistant to going inside a police station because the likelihood is they've been arrested or even their parents have been arrested. So new museums can be a neutral environment. They can be an area that young people particularly have seen and know about, maybe even visited to. So they're a neutral environment. So at the very top end of it is those kind of kids that are involved. At the very far end of it, it, we built a large exhibition about knife crime, just giving information. And that allowed parents who may never have, taught the subject with their child, you know, a child comes in from school, at the moment they go out and play Pokemon Go, or they would go out and watch the TV, uh, they'd go to bed, they would do their homework, there would not be a conversation. Uh, but because in the museum, where they were having a fun day out, they were dressing and looking at uh, objects about knives and about crime, they were able to open that conversation with their child and perhaps learn more about it. So at one end, you could be doing some really tough stuff with some really difficult children. And the other end, you could just be touching children who were just starting to be just having a conversation about it. Who may never, ever come across it, but at least they were talking about it. And that's what I think museums do really well. They allow people to have the conversation. They don't always, they're not there to give you an answer, but they're they're there to make the conversation. So the No To Nice campaign had a myriad of different activities, uh, and that was just some of them.
1: I thank you very much. That's a very interesting uh, case study. And I, I am struck again, as I was when I, I read your article, that it would be so easy to contain Constrain your thinking or contain your thinking uh, with just the historic aspect
0: yeah. of
1: yeah. of the of the object. You know, sort of being um, constrained by the collection as opposed to sort of looking outside and saying, "Here is something that really does." Con- you know, the object, in the collection connects us. Uh, yeah. To society but in in a in a in a different way, and I w- was wondering just you know to bring this back around uh right before it would before break we were talking about some of those barriers um you know boards or or others in the institution being concerned uh how did you then nurture that shift in thinking?
2: well, you have to do it from the very beginning, so I think it, before you even start saying hey here 's a good idea let 's do a an exhibition about knife crime you have to start working with uh, the museum and the boards and the, and the individuals in there to ensure that you have their buy-in from the very beginning so you know again it's showing what are the pluses of this so one of the uh the key pluses that came out of that was and it's always on everybody's mind is the funding side of it you know is it, is it uh, going to stop people funding us because we're working in this particular area or is it going to encourage funding well what we found is that uh, when you start moving into these different areas new funding stream opened so we were finding we were getting funding from uh, the police funding from our, what we call the home office but you call homeland uh, defense homeland security uh, they were funding projects that we we're doing because they were having a real impact on young people and making their job easier. So actually, being able to talk to uh, uh, those the, the various departments in the museum and the boards and say to them, look, this actual direction is a benefit to us, not just because it's kind of you know the, the kind of softly community work that we should be doing, but actually there's a direct and definitive benefit of doing this work. And, and one of the measures I'd really think, if anybody's listening from museums or museum institutions, to ask a, to ask yourself is if your museum closed tomorrow. Who would care? And if you think, who are the people that your museum directly affects? And you, know, you really want the fact that if your museum was to close tomorrow, there'd be a public outcry, because then you know you're doing a good job. So we would, we would try to say that this museum has more of a role to play than just being somewhere you come and look at objects. Yes, you can do that, and yes, it's a really good uh, thing to do, and people have a, there's nothing wrong with people having a great day out and enjoying them, but there is some more things we could be doing as well. <sighs>
1: Another thing that I think bears uh, uh emphasis and repeating uh, I, as an interpretive planner, of course, I'm working with a number of clients and and the first question is, you know who is this for, and how will yeah. they be be affected and yeah. one one group uh, that that i I often feel we unintentionally uh, neglect are those parents and caregivers, uh, what I like to call child supporters, you know, it could be a teacher, it could be a friend, a, a foster parent, doesn't uh, you know that that doesn't matter. And it sounds as if that was a a, a very intentional, uh, certainly was an impact uh, and an outcome of of your your success. But w- how intentional uh, were you in in thinking that this uh, would be an opportunity to arm? excuse the pun, uh, parents and, 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 uh, and child supporters with uh, information uh, to be able to talk to their children?
2: Well, museums are outside of, to outside of uh, mainstream education, outside of the classroom and homeschooling. Museums are the biggest provider of education to young people. If you kind of consider the number of young people that come through your museum uh, and are are being educated, because people come into a museum with their minds open. They come in a museum thinking, I'm going to learn something. There's very few places that people do that. You consider, you know, I go to a park, I go to a zoo, or I go to a, uh, you know, I go to a shopping mall. They're not thinking at that place, I'm going to deliberately want to learn something. But when they walk through the doors of a museum, that's what's on their mind. They've deliberately have opened their minds to learning new things. And to learn new things means a, a, a system of communication. And what we need to provide and how we provide is that ability to communicate. So we're back again to having nice places you can sit and talk, a nice place you can have a cup of coffee and discuss things, and also uh, exhibitions and galleries and objects that stimulate that communication. So I love those moments when you get some child who's reading some label or heard something new who runs back to their parents to tell them about it. I mean, that's where you really know you've you have you've hit the mark. And I think uh, that's what museums can do, stimulate that communication. And, that that's, and circling back to what we said at the beginning, it's about people talking about other people as well. So I use a phrase, and, and, and there's lots of these different phrases, but I use the phrase paddlers, swimmers, and divers when we develop our exhibitions and our labels and our interactives and our films and our movies. And basically, the vast majority of our visitors are paddlers. They're people who want to go to the beach, put their feet in the water, have a good time, and, and leave. And, uh, and then the swimmers are people who know a little bit about the subject, can get a bit deeper into it, probably watch something on the TV before they came or follow the History Channel or listen to this, this radio program, and they go into the museum and they uh, can swim a little bit, they can understand a little bit, they can dive a little bit deeper. And then the divers themselves are the ones with all the equipment, the ones who kind of understand museums and understand the subject and want more information, and we as a museum... Our responsibility is to turn those uh, those paddlers into swimmers and those swimmers into divers. So we try to create things that lead them on to new stuff. And of course, today, with all the different ways you can communicate, you don't need to have all the information on a label. You can easily direct people to find that information somewhere else in the Internet or in the books or other areas or other museums. And if they're a diver and understand how to do that, that's what they'll do next. So that's kind of my sort of mantra, you know, turn the, swimmers into, uh, the paddlers into swimmers and those swimmers into divers.
1: I, I like that analogy a, a great deal and what I'm also hearing you say which I I don't I I too believe that uh, Nancy Proctor was on the show about a oh, well yeah. some time ago but but I loved her analogy that museums are simply are not not simply but but we need to understand that they are one node on within the information infrastructure oh, yeah, and that one of the things that we can say as a goal, uh, you know, not not be upset anymore that we aren't the sole source, but yeah. we can set as a goal creating uh, skills and knowledge about how to then take the museum experience and connect it to the next node. And I, yeah. I've always liked that analogy and it sounds that, uh, you know, that's still a discussion that, that we tend uh, as museum professionals, I think, to get stuck in. Would you agree? Yeah. You know, we sort of become well, I, polarized.
2: I, I, absolutely. I mean, it, it's difficult when in, you, you have to kind of create the environment within the museum to be able to do that. So, if, for instance, most people will receive their information now in the news by going on the Internet and reading through the, the news on the Internet. And as they're reading through some article on the news and it says something about, you know, as it happened in the Battle of Princeton, for instance, that will be a hyperlink, and you can click on that Battle of Princeton and it will take you and tell you more information about it. And that's what people are expecting now, with the ability to be able to find out the information quickly from that area, and one of the things I've been just considering lately is the fact that if I said to somebody in an audience, "Can you tell me the exact date of the Battle of Princeton and how many people were killed there?" and 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 90 to 99% 9, of the time, no one will have that answer. But if I said to them, "I'm now going to give you five minutes to look on your mobile, on your cell phones," they'll have the answer. So. Giving the information that's to hows and the whens becomes less relevant to us now in museums because people can do it very quickly, uh, with instantly, with a, with a machine in their pockets. More importantly is the why. How do we explain the why? Because that's not explained through your Wikipedia or your internet. You've got, so that's, about again, about the people and why things happened rather than when and where they happened.
1: Yes, and I, and I, I would think too, that then our, our interpretive goals are not so much to provide information, you know, that yes. sort of a whooshy word, but not to provide yeah. information, but to help uh, the, the audience create their own questions. Because once yes, somebody has absolutely. a question, then they, they absolutely uh, probably have a, have a way to answer it. And if they don't, I bet the museum could help them learn those skills as, as well. Um, and they
2: have uh, have every right to make the comments and have those questions and this is something we talked about at the beginning about how uh, the old fashioned museum was basically read this label I'm going to give you some information now you should thank (laughs) me and leave where today people would expect to start giving their own, so I know that here, this radio show, no doubt on the internet you'll have a thing that says comments at the bottom and people write comments and, and people expect now on, uh, and they go to look at a Facebook or they go to look at anything on the internet, or even, they expect to be able to give their opinion and to give their stories, why is the story that I tell in my museum more important than the story of the guy that came to that museum so we should be listening and using their stories as well and we need a mechanism that allows those stories to become part of the, of the museum, not a question of us saying, we are the keepers of all knowledge, and we you know, are going to give it to you. We need to be saying, well, what are your things that you want to add to this knowledge? Yes,
1: yeah, so the museum, museum is Wikipedia. Yeah, it's added
2: to it. I mean, you know, sometimes it'll be completely wrong and we'll be able to help people in the right direction. Uh, sometimes they'll be completely right and we'll know absolutely nothing about that it will help it. So if you think about the museums, particularly history museums, that may be telling stories about the Second World War, uh, why would somebody who comes to that museum who has a story about their great-granddad who fought in the war and has a detailed story about and letters from them, that's just as, as valid as important as, as what is being told in that museum. So mechanisms have to be created to allow those, things to be happening.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And uh, But before we go any further, we're going to, going to take our second break. And when we come back, as promised, uh, Peter is going to share with us how he is applying uh, these these theories and practices to the up-and-coming opening of the Jamestown and uh, Yorktown Museum. And so stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. Oh, I wanted to let everyone know that Peter's article, if you're interested about his work at the Royal Armories, will be published in a book called Inspiring Action, Museums and Social Change. That is published by uh, museums, etc., and it will be available through all of our favorite bookstores. So look for that in uh, in the coming months. And with that, we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
3: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit Carol carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser.com. At Verizon.net. Now, back to museum life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I have been having a great conversation with uh, Peter Armstrong who is the Senior Director of Museum Operations and Education for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And as I said at the beginning of the program, uh, this is a, uh, Peter is involved in a really exciting project that is going to be opening this October. And uh, so I want to give Peter the opportunity to share with us you know what this project is about, and I know that in doing so, Peter, you will be illustrating how you have applied some of your theories and practice about museums and social justice to this new initiative.
2: Yes, well, we're developing a museum at the moment, uh, which is uh, to be placing a museum we had before for the Jamestown-Yorktown Foundation, which was called the Yorktown Victory Center. And it's now transitioning into the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. And that uh, museum will uh, open its galleries, actually, just to get this correct. It opens its galleries in October. But the whole museum, which includes a large outside area, will open officially on April first, 2017. Just want to make that clear, because I've got to build a thing, and I don't, I don't want to have to be ready by October. Give me till April <laughs> at least. Uh, okay, so, fair enough. Fair enough. So, but the galleries themselves will be open uh, in, in October, uh, October 15th and 16th, just before... Yorktown day uh, so as we're developing this museum and have been doing so for I've only been involved for two and a half years but the museum has been developed a gestation period of about eight years or so but as, as we develop it we are looking at you know what stories we're we telling how are we telling now the whole of the American Revolution. So although we sit on the, uh, on the actual battlefield of Yorktown and the Yorktown battlefield is run by the National Park Service and they have their own small museum, we have this kind of $50 million plus museum that is opening uh, very soon. And within it we're developing obviously movies and we've got a, an immersive environment where you uh, sit and see the Battle of Yorktown all around you and we've got obviously over 500 objects that are in there and they're all being put in as we speak. We're currently putting in uh, some uh, objects from the Betsy, which was a ship that was sunk in the York River, which we put an excavation on and brought those objects up, and they're going into the moment. So we've got all of those things in there, but you know what stories we're telling? We're telling the American Revolution, but if we tell the story that says this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, whether well, you should have bought a book or got yourself on the Internet, and you could have just read the same thing. So what are we doing that is different and allowing you to be involved. So we're very much concentrating on what we describe as ordinary people in extraordinary times. So we're picking individuals who are ordinary people who are just like you and I, and how have they involved in the American Revolution, and how did it affect their lives. And my real interest in this and how it ties in with the social history side of it is what made individual people who were just kind of farmers or shopkeepers or blacksmiths making a good living uh, you know, uh, uh, pay, paying their way through life, usually having a wife, some kids, you know, having a, a normal family, normal lives. Uh, what made them suddenly said, I'm going to put down this, this uh, plow and I'm going to pick up this gun and I'm going to try and take on the largest and most powerful army in the world? What made the American people join together to take on the British? What is this thing about liberty and freedom that makes individuals do these, these things? Uh, Because, you know, they're not doing it for profit and they're not doing it for any other reason other than they feel that their liberty and their freedom is being taken from them. So that's a really interesting topic to take forward into the social realms. You know, what is important about freedom and liberties today, particularly in today's world, uh, and how do we maintain those and how do we ensure that our liberty is not at the cost of other people's liberty? And when we discussed the whole museum and said, you know, what do we really want this museum to do? One of my members of staff said, I would really love it if people got to the end of the museum and decided they were going to vote. And if it just did that, it would be really an effective museum as a whole. So as we're developing the museum that's telling us people about the American Revolution and what happened in those periods, we're also looking at all those other issues that are attached to it.
1: And I think... uh, well. Let me change tax. One of it occurs to me as you're talking uh, that you know you're using some really great uh, interpretive techniques, and I do uh, like it that you're you're focusing on uh, you know in individuals, as you said, what uh, uh, ordinary people in extraordinary times. It reminds me of of one of those television series. Uh, uh, revolutionary spies, which of course is probably not based on any kind of reality and historical accuracy, but it is I couldn't interesting. I could <laughs> comment.
2: will leave that to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well... Uh, but it, it. I'll tell. I'll just tell this story on, on myself. You know, I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, comment on the on the dramatic effects. But what it did remind me, it, you because they are using actors and actresses that reflect the relative age of the people who yeah. would have been involved in, you know, doing whatever. Uh, and they've they've even portrayed some of the historic figures more in their accurate age. And it yeah. reminds me that unfortunately, when we show a photograph of George Washington or Aaron Burr or uh, Paul Revere, yeah. we always show them in their 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 agedness, and of course those yeah. white wigs didn't help. But no. I think it makes it very difficult for uh, young people to have any kind of uh, find any kind of relevance yeah, uh, in in those. So I'm wondering is is that an area that you're trying to do as well is just you know, make, make people feel that they can see themselves in all of these stories
2: yes it's again about relevance what, what has this thing that happened 230 odd years got to do with me and that's the kind of message that we want to be trying to get people to, 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 to leave with. It's entirely relevant to your lives today, what happened in the American Revolution, because we kind of call it the American Revolution evolution. The American Revolution, uh, the Battle of Yorktown, is not the end of the American Revolution. It's the start of the development of America. And it's that point that we want to try and get people to understand and, and how that is relevant to them. So we follow the stories of young people. We follow the stories of young girls, which is an area that obviously doesn't get touched very often in the American Revolution. Are many um, uh, children believe that the American Revolution was won by George Washington. And they, they don't they forget the thousands of young men and young women that were involved in this particular struggle. And we try to pick up their stories and we do that through digital means, but also through, through just physical means through. And so, you know, if you watch the movie, when you first come in, you meet a guy called Billy Flora, who was a hero of a battle at Great Bridge, who was an African-American, very young about in his teens. And you follow his story, and you'll see him again later on, and you'll find out what happened to him, and you'll and you'll understand that actually it's about it's a much bigger picture than just a purely a story of the major battles that we've all heard of, and, this, and, the, and the signing of the Declaration in seventeen seventy six. That actually the American Revolution begins long before that, and goes right up even to today, and we're still struggling. And as I can see with today with the politicians in the presidential elections, still struggling with some of those issues that uh, that the American Revolution raised. So you, you've got to put in a museum, you know, you've know, you got to put everything in context, you've got to think about uh, the relevance to people, and you've got to make sure that it, that it should connect to them, and it should have some resonance to their lives today. Otherwise, it is just uh, a dusty old place that we talked about at the very beginning of this interview. <sighs>
1: And the other point that I wanted to bring up something that you and I were talking about right before we went on the air uh, the uh, the museum here on the mall the National Museum of African- American history and culture is also opening um, uh, September, September I believe yeah. and uh, and you said that you have been in in conversations with them to uh, reinforce messaging about the issue of slavery can you share you know how how that, how your thinking has developed, and how that's going to be uh, uh, portrayed and raised uh, as an issue in in the museum.
2: Well, we have uh, for the first time in the new museum, American Revolution Museum in Yorktown, we have an outside area. So all of our museums, the Jamestown-Yorktown Foundation has two museums: the Jamestown Settlement Museum. Uh, which is about a mile from the actual historic museum, so there 's a museum called the uh, jamestown the uh, museum that has the the archaeological dig area to it, and that 's uh, partly owned by the National Park service and by virginia uh, archaeology but uh, but the, the jamestown settlement is is a, a museum that has uh, large galleries that we run in large uh, Uh, a a traditional type of museum, galleries, movies, films, artifacts, etc. And then a living history area outside that has an Indian village, uh, an English fort, and three ships that the the first uh, English settlers arrived on. Uh, And the James and the American Revolution Museum has a similar thing. It has a large galleries, and then outside it will have a continent, Continental Army encampment and a farm. And on that farm, for the first time, we will have a, a slave quarter, because it's a copy of a farm from that period. It's an exact copy of a farm that was owned by a gentleman called Moss on that site, and there was, an, there was a, a slave quarter, as he would have had, and we know the names of the slaves and the names of the children. So we're dealing with that issue there, and we're dealing with the issue all the way through the American Revolution Museum, and we're also dealing with the issue because in Jamestown, the first Africans arrived in Jamestown uh, in in in, in uh, in uh, 1619. So it's coming up the anniversary of that as well. So uh, the African arrival into into Jamestown as well. So the, the whole issue of slavery comes all the way through. Uh, and we're dealing with that in, in, in both of those museums and we want to just ensure that, that uh, messages that we're telling the story that we're telling and the facts that we're telling uh, match up to the things that are being done in, in the museum in, in Washington as well so we've got a, a cohesive uh, discussion about that issue but you know, we also want to talk about all the fantastic things that uh, the Africans brought to, the, to this country and, and how they fought in the American Revolution for that freedom so the fact that an African American is a hero in Billy Flora is a really interesting thing because if he had decided to join the British, they were offering him freedom. Yet he chose to fight for the American side of it because he felt there was a bigger freedom to be, to be gained. So that's a really fascinating, interesting story as well.
1: That that really is, and Peter, in listening to you, I, I'm realizing that I think I may have to reshape one of uh, my beliefs, and that is that it's easier for small museums to go beyond their stated mission. To address issues of social change, because you're you have uh, two, three shining examples of how a larger institution, and certainly yours, can have a can you know change the direction of the organization and um, uh, enhance its relevance to the community and um, do it all on a much larger
3: scale.
2: Well, you've got, you've got, you know, you have greater facilities, you have a greater off- offering to do that than maybe a smaller museum. I'm not saying it's easier. I think a smaller museum with smaller numbers of people, then many things are easier than they are a huge institution. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you should still be doing it. That is not an excuse to say that I'm a large museum and therefore I can't do these things. I think as a large museum, we have a social responsibility to ensure that we are doing things that, uh, for the community just as much as a small museum.
1: Peter, I've had such a fabulous time talking with you today. This has been so encouraging, and I know listeners uh, throughout the country and around the world will take inspiration from uh, some of your suggestions and thoughts. Uh, Good luck to you. Uh, I can't wait to come down uh, in October and see the the galleries, and then, yes, I'll wait until May. I won't show up on your doorstep (laughs) in December. Uh,
2: the museum's open now so the, the, the parts of the museum are still open so we've been open all the way through it's not a construction so it's a, if you want to come tomorrow you can still come tomorrow and see things
1: well great and the summer isn't over so those of not you who, who, are, who are on the Atlantic seaboard or planning on taking a vacation um, make sure and stop by to see Peter I'm sure he would be interested in, in showing you around uh, I've just filled up your schedule Peter yeah right uh, I've got lots of time
2: <laughs> luckily luckily I'm not doing anything
1: no no <laughs> Peter thank you Thank you so very much. Good luck to you, and thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Until then, uh, contact me at carol.bossert at verizon.net or at Muse Right. Always interested in hearing your thoughts. As Peter said, that just continues to expand the conversation. So until next week, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.